Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is the word of God. Amen. Thanks, Romero. Good morning, everybody. If you don't know me, my name is Vince. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. Um, Today is Palm Sunday. Next Sunday is Easter Sunday. And um, last year, if you know anything about Easter, it's one of the few times culturally where people who tend not to be um, excited about Christianity or really attend church will show up, especially if there are Easter eggs and children and nephews and nieces involved. So we have a thousand of these printed up. And the reason why we do is because last year a bunch of people showed up for the first time because of these things. Some of them are still sitting here. And so um, they're in the back on your way out. I want to encourage you to grab some, hand them to people who you know might be interested in an Easter egg hunt or an Easter service, or they're looking for a place to come worship on Easter, or um, put them in a coffee shop, put them in a laundromat, put them all over the place, because it does work and people will show up. And the reason why we want people to show up is not just so that we can have more butts in seats on Sundays. That is not the point. The point is um, that we believe here at New City that the gospel changes everything. That the gospel is not about what we do for God, it's about what he's done for us. And that discipleship is not a bunch of plate spinning and busyness and all the stuff that we do for God. Discipleship is, is applying the good news of the gospel into more and more areas of our life. The gospel changes everything. That's what we believe, and that's what this passage is about today. We've been walking through the book of Ephesians that Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, and it's helpful to remember that the first three chapters or so of the book of Ephesians is heavy and theological, and there's a lot of doctrine, and who God is, and what he's done for us, and who we are in Christ, and all these truths about the cross, and, and redemption, and grace, and, and union with Christ. And then you get to chapters 4, 5, and 6, and it's super practical, right? And we've, been, we've, we've entered into this, and now we're in the last chapter, chapter 6. And here's the point. It's not, it's not a different theme. These aren't two different things. It's not a different subject. Paul is showing us throughout this book that what it means to be the church and what it means to be a Christian is to be theologically driven. It means theology, doctrine, truths about the Trinity, the cross, the atonement, grace, and redemption, and so on. All those things have a massive effect on how we live because theology is insanely practical. In one sense, everyone's a theologian. Even, even an atheist. No matter what you believe about God, that influences how you live. How you see God influences how you see life, and it influences how you choose to live it. You live out what you believe. If you want to know what somebody believes, just look at their life. They're living out their deepest beliefs. So all this theology that Paul has laid out is incredibly practical, and it influences every area of life. And two of those areas that we come to today, 
that are laid out before us are work and family. Work and family. And on one hand, honestly, it's a bit difficult for me to cover all of this in one sermon, um, as you'll see. On the other hand, it's, I think it's helpful to like do a flyover and, and see like the big picture of all of this and to see how Christ really is Lord of every area of our life. And I'm going to try my best to make it practical, but time is not going to allow it. So I'm going to encourage you guys to, to apply it to your lives, to make it as practical as possible for yourself. So let's take a look at these uh, truths under three headings, Jesus in your work, Jesus in your family, and Jesus and your life. You guys ready? All right, let's dive in. Jesus and your work. We're looking at verses five through nine. And here Paul is laying out principles for your work life. But first, though, like right away, we have to do something. I'm going to try to keep it to a couple minutes. But the very fact that Paul says, slaves, obey your masters. Masters, don't misuse your slaves. We can't just skim past that part, right? Because immediately we say, why in the world were Christians in the first century not immediately abolishing slavery? And before we can get into how this truth applies to us and to our workplaces and to our everyday lives, we have to remember a couple things. First of all, it's almost impossible for us in our modern American context to look back through history and, and to see that Paul is talking to slaves in the first century um, and in Rome and in Ephesus and how different that is from slavery in the 18th and 19th century America and, and the Caribbean. But we have to realize that the differences are enormous here. The Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary, which is a scholarly dictionary by historians and scholars, points something out. It says, it's really hard for us to read what the Bible says here because we automatically assume Paul's talking to people who are in the same conditions as the slaves were in America. And it's simply not true. It's not true for a couple reasons, a couple things you need to know. First of all, slavery in Rome was not at all based on race. Okay, it wasn't race-based slavery. Secondly, it was not lifetime slavery. Okay, you normally were a slave up until you were about 30 years old. And then the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary says this. I have the quote up on the screen. Despite these clear legal distinctions between owners and slaves, persons in slavery did not constitute a different social or economic class. Slaves' social status, their lifestyle, their economic opportunities, even their education were tied to the status of their respective masters. It's a lot more like uh, you get paid based on what company you work for, right? Kind of think of it in those terms. And they developed no recognizable consciousness of being a group or of suffering a common plight. For this reason, any call like slaves of the world unite would have fallen on completely deaf ears in ancient times. In fact, rather than look for work each day without certainty, many people in those days sold themselves into slavery in order to gain job security. So it's a lot more like indentured servanthood. And as soon as you hear that, you say, oh, wait a minute, that's not the kind of slavery I was thinking of when I saw that word slavery. That's right. It wasn't great, right? But, but it wasn't until slavery became the ruthless, race-based, violent, brutal, lifetime chattel slavery that happened in the Caribbean and the New World in the 18th and 19th centuries that Christians rose up and said, something has to be done here. This has to be stopped. It has to be abolished. You see that? Okay. In fact, I had a friend a few years ago. He was working on uh, his degree um, in history. And as he was looking into this topic in particular, it was a PhD, and his advisors were saying, look, historians don't think like other people. 
Historians think very differently. Most people say, how could these people in the past have ever put up with this horrible thing called slavery? And his advisors pointed out, they said that historians, on the other hand, say, why? Since every, uh, excuse me, since every society and every culture and every century throughout all of human history had always accepted slavery in some form, where in the world did the idea come from that slavery was wrong? My friend was a believer, and his advisors were not. And his advisors said, we know where it came from. It came from the Christians. It came from the evangelicals and the Quakers and some Catholics who got it out of the Bible. Okay, so, so the Bible does not excuse slavery, especially the kind that we saw in early America. Are we all tracking? Yeah. Okay, that being established, can we, can we go on? Because we could dwell there all day, <laughs> right? And this would be a very interesting for some seminary class and not a sermon on this passage. Okay, but can we begin to apply what Paul is talking about to our lives? Okay, cool. Here's what he says. Two things that are really, really radical about how you view work. First of all, that all work is a divine calling and that work requires all of your heart. All work is a divine calling. What do I mean when I say all work's a divine calling? Um, Kenny mentioned this last week. In the ancient world, what you have here in this part of Ephesus or Ephesians, where it talks about your relationships with your spouse and your kids and your servants, it was actually very typical in ancient times. Often in the Greco-Roman world, writers would write these manuals. He read from Aristotle last week who had written a, a, similar, a similar manual, and they were called household codes. And it, basically, they were written to the head of the household, the dad, the husband, the master, and saying, this is how you order your life. This is how you relate to your spouse, your kids, your servants, your business associates. And as you do that, it's our way of regulating your relationships and ordering society. And firstly, I think the thing that really stands out about this passage, and, and all scholars, when you read it, point this out, is that they, when the Christians wrote household codes... They actually addressed the slaves, the women, and the children. The pagans never addressed them. They just talked to the dads, the husbands, the masters. But the pagans did. Why? Because in those societies, they, they weren't seen as responsible agents. They just did whatever they were told. But Paul treats them like people. Guess why? Because they're people. Right? <laughs> Um, but, but the pagans never address them that way. Secondly, even though they're domestic servants here, even though they're doing these so-called like menial jobs and, and just everyday labor, they're doing jobs of immeasurable value. He says what? Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Let me ask you, if we went to a bookstore today and you saw a book and the title was Called to Serve, what would you think that book was about? called to serve the Lord. How about that? What would you think that book was about? We'd probably think, oh, this is about somebody going into ministry. This is about somebody going into missions work and flying across the world, right? Uh, but you know why we would think that? The reason we think that is because we don't have a biblical view of work. As soon as I, I think of serving the Lord, as, th as soon as you think of serving the Lord, generally speaking, right away, we say, well, it can't mean farming. It can't mean pushing a broom. It can't mean doing dishes. It can't mean accounting. But we're wrong. Because here's what Paul's saying. He's saying to domestic servants, he's talking to people who did push a broom, right? And he's saying what? I don't want you to think in any other way 
than this. This is a calling from God. You've been called to serve God. And you say, how can that be? Well, I think Martin Luther does the best job on this than anyone. Uh, Martin Luther, if you find his exposition on the Lord's Prayer, he gets to this phrase where it says, you know the phrase, give us this day our daily bread? He says, yeah, we need to pray that. We need to pray, Lord, please feed us, feed us. But Psalm 145 says God feeds all his creatures. And whenever we're sitting at the table and you got milk in front of you and bread in front of you, we thank God for feeding us. But here's what Luther says. How'd you get that bread and milk? How did God feed you? Did he do it directly? Is God like in heaven with a giant oven like bacon bread? (laughs) Sending it down to your plate? Is that how God feeds us? No, it's the farmer. He says, it's the milkmaid, it's the transporters, and it's the grocers. Oh, such menial tasks. And yet they're doing God's work. God feeds us, but instead of doing it directly, what's he do? He delegates it to the farmers and the milkmaids and the transporters and the grocers. We tracking? Another place uh, Luther talks about this is um, when he, I think it's his exposition, it's Psalm Psalm 147. Um, He says this, God strengthens the bars of the gates of your city. That's what Psalm 147, 13 says. See, because back then cities had walls. And if your city had walls, if you had a secure city, if the bars of the gates were strong, then the whole city, there was order, there wasn't crime, there wasn't invasion. God strengthens the bars of your city. And Martin Luther says, yeah, that's right. God takes care of us. It says so in the Psalm. But how does he do it? Does he do it directly? I personally think that would be awesome. I think it would be amazing if God directly was here with a bunch of angels with fiery swords walking around San Diego, (laughs) keeping the peace. We wouldn't need laws. We wouldn't need police. We wouldn't need anything. But that's not what God does, is it? God delegates that responsibility. And, and, And he says what makes a city secure is good laws from good legislators, good laws upheld by good lawyers, secure by police and military, good governance from magistrates, and managers, and rulers. In other words, God takes care of us through the work of other people. All work is God's way of meeting your needs and giving you life through the work of other people. So all work, all of it, all work that's not evil inherently, all work that's actually good and redemptive, whether it's boring, whether it's menial, don't forget he's talking to domestic servants here, right? All work is God's work. Uh, we were just in Ecuador, and uh, Nancy and I, and we uh, got to visit a part of Ecuador that was paying homage to the Wudani tribe. Anybody heard of the Wudani tribe? The famous missionary uh, Jim Elliott was killed by the Wudani tribe, and Elizabeth Elliott um, stayed on, and famously, they were changed by the gospel. And, and God reached in and did an amazing work, and she went on to be an author and a seminary professor, and she talks about work. Um, and so I've been researching her quite a bit. And one of the things she says is, she says, in Genesis, what do we see? In Genesis, we see God bringing order out of chaos, right? That's what he does. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the spirit of God moved on the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light, order out of chaos. And then she says, think of cleaning your house, wiping off the counters, dusting, mopping the floors. You might do it yourself. You might pay somebody to do it, but if nobody does that work, then you're going to die. 
If nobody does that work, then chaos and death begin to take over, right? Have you guys ever gone one week without cleaning your house? <laughs> the room immediately got awkward, like, do I stay? Yes. I'm... <laughs> Listen, when you clean your house, you're reflecting God. I'm going to say that again. When you clean your house, you're reflecting God. You're bringing order out of chaos. All work reflects God. There's no menial work. There's no insignificant people. There's no unimportant task. All work is a calling of God. All work is God's work. And all work is God's way of meeting our needs and giving you life through the work of other people. So you know what that means? Here's what that means. If that's true, let me give you two applications real quick. First, in San Diego, we're surrounded by people pushing brooms. I see it in downtown all the time. We've got hotels. We've got restaurants. In those restaurants, in the back are people washing dishes. We're surrounded by valet drivers and, and maids and concierges. We're surrounded by people doing so-called menial, lower-paying work. And as millennials, how do we view those jobs? Let's be honest. It gets quiet, right? Oh, we're all chasing our dream jobs, the job that really fulfills me. We all have a certain outlook on work, and there's this like hierarchy of jobs in our mind. If you dare to look down on somebody's job, if you dare to look down on anyone like, like their furniture or just a cog in the machine, and you don't treat them with dignity and respect, then you don't have a biblical view of work. All work is meaningful. Adam was a gardener, a groundskeeper. Right? David was a shepherd. That's a dirty job. Mike Rowe should have done an episode on shepherds. <laughs> right? Jesus was a carpenter. Is your job somehow better? All work is God's work. There are no insignificant jobs that lack dignity. Secondly, what if you have a job that's boring? <laughs> what if you have a job that doesn't really fulfill you? Right? Like I said, you know, it's crunching numbers or it's something you don't see how it's really making a difference in the world. First of all, you can go get a job that's more in line with your gifts and interests. I'm not telling you you got to stay in your job. But please appreciate the work that you're doing. Because all work in some way is about cultivating the raw materials around us and bringing order out of chaos and redeeming the brokenness of this world. Your job matters. Unless it's inherently evil. If you are an assassin, maybe there's still some way it's redeemable. I don't know. I can't see it. Okay. So please, there isn't any kind of work that isn't God's work. Uh, we're walking through New City Catechism with our kids. And the first one is, who is God? I'm going to put him on the spot right now. Ivan, who is God? That's right. God is creator. Boom. And, and those... I'll buy you lunch after this. Good job. <laughs> and the old version says God's creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. Right? So what does that mean? How does that work? How does God, cre how does God sustain life? What is providence? How does God provide for us? Through other people's work. Theology not only transforms your understanding of the meaning of work. Theology not only infuses all work with meaning, but it also changes your motive 
It works on your heart. Why? Because not only is all work divine call, but secondly, work requires all your heart. Look at what it says. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. Obey them not only to win favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly. That word wholeheartedly means joy and zeal, even on a Monday. <laughs> Serving the Lord. Here's what this means. You have an earthly boss, right? You have, we all do. But in a sense, they're not really the important one. Look around her. Look around him to your heavenly boss. Why? Because a lot, of you, a lot of you work for bosses, and a lot of you work for companies that deserve a good day's work. And a lot of you work for bosses and for companies that don't deserve a good day's work. Therefore, some of you are doing your best, and some of you are not doing your best, right? And that's only because we don't have a biblical view of work. Our theology hasn't become practical yet. It hasn't hit the ground that we're walking on. And what Paul is saying is that work, all work, is actually God's work. We, ju we just said that, right? And if that's the case, if the core of all work is doing God's work in the world, if, if God has delegated his work to you, then your real master, your real boss is who? God. God is the real boss behind your earthly boss. So look to him. He always deserves a good day of work, doesn't he? He's your creator. He's your sustainer. He's your redeemer, the one who gave you life, the one who gave you new life. If you look to him, then you'll always be serving wholeheartedly. You'll always be productive. You'll always be giving your best. You'll always be working with excellence. And, and here are two interesting results. First of all, that's liberating. Because a lot of us allow our performance to be dictated by our environment and how well people are dealing with us at work, right? You know, I'm we got a kind of a mmm on that one. Is that right for most of us? It's like if we live in a hostile environment at work, we hate our job and we underperform. We tend to. But it's liberating because now if, if God is your real boss, if he's the boss behind your boss, if he's your master, your Lord, your environment won't control you anymore. Other people can't screw you up anymore because you have dignity inherent in you. You know your identity. It doesn't matter what people say, what people think of you, how many plates they drop. You're going to do a good day's work. Why? Because you're actually working for the real boss. So it becomes absolutely liberating. Secondly, and this is ironic, I think, but it's practical. Do you know why it's so practical? Because imagine this. If you actually work for your real heavenly boss over the long run, then eventually the earthly bosses will all be competing to get you. You know that? If you're the kind of person who is really always thinking about God, I want to please him. If your work is worship, he deserves a good day's work. Then you're going to be such a good worker. You're going to be so steady. You're going to be so productive. You're going to have so much integrity. You're going to work hard, not only when people are watching, all the time. And people are going to see that. Word's going to get out, right? And I don't have time to go into it, but just think of the story of Joseph. No matter what pit or, or thing he fell into, he served as unto the Lord. He always remembered God, and he always rose up. The cream of the crop, rise to the top. <laughs> What's ironic here is this. 
have this quote. If you actually care more about your heavenly boss than your earthly boss, eventually all the earthly bosses will be falling all over themselves trying to get you to work for them. This is not the view of work in the Greco-Roman world. People who did menial tasks, they were just looked down on. They were nothing. They were scum. They were inconsequential. But this idea of work is utterly different, and it'll change you too. Why? Because you know that you're going to do a good day's work because you're actually working for the real boss. I'm trying to show you that. My main point is this. The minute these people, these early Christians in their culture, the minute they became Christians and they begin to take the gospel into themselves and apply the truth of God's word and what he's done for them into their life, it radically changed them so much. Theology became practical and they became very different from the people around them. Let me show you how that works with family. Point number two, Jesus and your family. Under family, which is verses one through four, you guys ready to move on? Sorry, we're, we're blowing through this because I only got 30 minutes or so. I want to get you guys to your chicken dinner, okay? So, or your vegan chicken dinner, whatever you prefer. Um, verses one through four. It tells you something for children to do. It tells you something for parents to do. It says, children, obey your parents. And then it says, what? Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Let's start there. What's interesting about this is obviously... Both father and mother raise the kids, right? It says children obey your parents, plural, right? So it could be, why, why does Paul say fathers don't exasperate your children? It could be because Paul saw fathers as the ones ultimately responsible for what happens in the home and what happens in the family. And it could also be because Paul thinks fathers are more likely to exasperate their children. <laughs> Speaking as a father, I don't know, that might be true. I don't know. Maybe on occasion, But let me show you how different this is from culture, okay? In ancient times, fathers, they literally owned their children. They were their property. They could do anything they wanted to them. They could even kill them. Did you hear that? (laughs) Sorry, man. (laughs) You picked the wrong day to do slides. So in the old household codes, like, it would say stuff like, fathers, discipline your kids, put them in check, be in control of them, mold them into the person you think they should be. And the first thing the Bible says is don't exasperate. It's a word that means infuriate. Don't infuriate your children. You see how this is such a different approach from anything else at that time. And by the way, it's saying, don't make your children perpetually angry. You say, well, how do you do that? Well, there's a couple ways you can make your children perpetually angry. The first way, the way we're probably thinking about, is is being somewhat abusive. What's that mean? One commentator in the book of Ephesians who knows something about this word says it this way. Don't infuriate your children means don't use excessively severe discipline, unreasonably harsh demands, abuse of authority, arbitrariness, unfairness constant nagging and condemnation, subjecting a child to humiliation and all forms of gross insensitivity to a child's needs and sensibilities. That will make your child perpetually angry. Excessively severe discipline, over-disciplining them. We tracking? There's another thing that will make your child perpetually angry, and some of you know where I'm going. Under-disciplining. 
under-disciplining your kids will make them, and by the way, by disciplining, I'm not just talking about like spankings. Let's be very, very clear. I'm talking about any way that you're correcting behavior, scolding, talking, whatever. Um, And there's another way, and that is under-discipline. If you're too undisciplined personally to be consistent with your children, if you're too afraid of your kids' disapproval so you always give in, if you're overindulging your child, if you're basically kind of like spoiling your child, then there's another way to raise your child who's always angry. Anyone who grows up with a sense of entitlement is going to be perpetually angry. You know why? Because when they get out into the real world, they're going to realize that everybody's not there to just give in to them and serve them. You're not setting them up for life if that's what you're doing. Over-discipline or under-discipline your child, and you will make them perpetually angry. Don't do that. You see how much is in here? Second thing it says is not just, it doesn't just say don't exasperate and infuriate your children, but what's it say? Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is such a great point. Um, It's a complete departure from culture at that time, and I think a complete departure from culture at our time, too, and how we view parenting and raising children. You know why? Ancient culture, like I said, said the purpose of parenting is to discipline your kid. You own them, discipline them, mold them into the person you want them to be. But the modern family idea is like the complete opposite of that. What do we say? We say the purpose of family is just to nurture the child, not to impose your views on them. Just let them grow up and be whoever they decide they want to be. You just nurture them. You just love them as they are, and that's it. Listen, discipline is really important, and nurture is really important. They're meant to go together, like peanut butter and jelly, as my wife always says, right? Much like Paul just discussed this two chapters ago. He was talking about how we grow up and mature into Christ. And what did he say? Speaking, you guys remember this, Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love. Truth versus love, which is it? Both, yeah. I love this quote from Keller. Love without truth. And it wouldn't be a sermon at New City if we didn't quote Timothy Keller. (laughs) (laughs) Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial of our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. So which is it, truth or love? Yeah, both. Which is it? Discipline or nurture? Both. Truth and love, discipline and nurture, they go together. And Paul is saying that what is the purpose of discipline and correction? What is the purpose of of nurture and love is to teach them what is right so they can be brought up. What does it mean to bring up? It means to get to the place where they don't need you anymore. And I know for those of us who are parents that struggle with codependence, that's a hard reality to swallow. But part of bringing your kids up means getting them to a place where they can survive in the world without you. To really mature them, to make them self-sufficient, to make them co-adults with you. And that doesn't happen through just disciplining or just nurturing them, but teaching them what's right. Stanley Hauerwas says it this way. A mother and a father might be wrong. They might use their authority to teach their children something misinformed, And maybe the child will grow up and decide they were wrong. But if they grow up with the notion that nothing matters in life, that is moral cowardice. 
The refusal to ask your children to believe as we believe, to live as we live, and to act as we act is a betrayal that comes from moral cowardice. What our kids need more than anything else is somebody who says, with, by the way, says with both their words and their actions, with both their declaration and their demonstration, that there is right and there's wrong, and this is how you ought to live. And if those kids grow up and they're like, I liked 80% of what my parents taught me, uh, or 50%, even 20% of what my parents taught me. The point is they learned how to grow up. Tracking? So if you just nurture them so they decide, I can just live any way I want, or if you just discipline them and crush them, then you're not going to bring them up. You have to teach them with both nurture and discipline, with both truth and love. If you're too angry at your parents because they were so flawed, and they didn't love you like you wanted. Or if you're too dependent on them still, you haven't been brought up. I'll never forget a friend uh, a couple years ago at a local coffee shop. His kid was going through some stuff, and we were talking, and Easter was coming up. And I was like, dude, we're doing an Easter egg hunt. You should bring your kid. And all of a sudden, it turned from this happy conversation. I, I was surprised. Middle of the coffee shop downtown, he was like, no, I will never take my kid to church. <laughs> I was like, whoa, wait. He didn't know I was a pastor at the time. Um, <laughs> I was just like shocked. He's like, I'll never, my dad forced me to go to church the whole time I was growing up. I'm never going to take my kid to church. What's happening there? So mad at his father that he's still being controlled by him. He hasn't been brought up yet. He's not his own person yet. Listen, if you're really mad at your parents, or on the other hand, if you're overly dependent on your parents, then you got a lot of discipline, or maybe you got a lot of nurturing love, but you weren't brought up. And that's your job with your children. Let me just turn it around here. It doesn't just tell us something about parents. It tells us something about children, right? It says, children, obey your parents um, and, and do this for your parents. And there's actually two categories of children being mentioned here. One is children, obey your parents in the Lord. That's for younger kids. The other is honor your father and mother. That's for all kids, young and old. Okay, honor your father and mother. That's in the Ten Commandments, right? In fact, it's the first commandment with promise. You guys know what the promise is? That your days may be what? Long upon the earth. It's promise when you obey that commandment. And here's what it's saying. You must always honor your father and mother no matter who they are, no matter what they're like, but you don't always have to obey your parents. Do you know why? Because if you had good parents who ask you to do good things, eventually you need to stop obeying them because you need to grow up and start to make good decisions for yourself. Right? And if you had bad parents who ask you to do bad things, you need to disobey them because they're bad. Obviously. But one thing you must always do is always honor them. And if this room was filled with kids right now, we would really dwell on that first part that says, children, obey your parents. And maybe there's a few teenagers in the room that this still applies to you. <laughs> but because most of the people in this room are adult children, not minors, and because if there's teens in this room who are turning 18, 19, 20, and moving into adulthood soon, let me just ask you, do you understand the honor principle? Like if your father and mother really disappointed you and you're struggling with resentment and you're living, your whole life is in a sense a reaction to their upbringing of you. 
Or if your father and mother are so important to you and, and, and their way of thinking is so important that you're still dependent on their approval, so you're pretty much obeying them, then you're not hitting that balance. You see what I'm saying? You're, you're supposed to honor them, not always obey them. You're supposed to honor them, not hate them. Right down the middle. Are we tracking? Okay, and you say, why? Well, first of all, you need to do it for your own children's sake. Because if your children, as they're coming up, see you dishonoring your parents, how do you think they're going to treat you when they're getting older? Right? That's just practical. Secondly, if you stay angry with your parents, your conscience is going to bug you. If you stay too dependent on them, then you're, the Bible says you're supposed to leave your father and mother and cleave to your wife. And you say, well, well how do I do that? Well, the word honor means to treat them with respect. There's a lot of ways of doing it. You look around this room, there's a lot of different cultures. There's a lot of different uh, culturally appropriate ways. Find the culturally appropriate way to make your parents feel respected and then give it to them, even if you'd rather not. You don't still have to obey them. You don't have to do everything they tell you, especially if they have bad opinions or make you watch that certain news channel. But you do have to show them respect. You do need to tell them what you did get from them that was good. You need to honor them. If you're still hurt, if you're still angry, you need to forgive them. You need to let go and love them to the best of your ability. Because if you don't forgive them, you're going to end up like my friend that's like, I will never. And you haven't been brought up. You're still being controlled. We tracking? Okay. So now, do you see why people in those days when they read this, the attitude towards children, the attitude towards parents, this is absolutely different than anything they'd ever seen. And people who read it in those days, when they saw the attitude of masters and they saw the attitudes of servants, it was completely different. And guess what? It's different now, isn't it? Because the moment you become a Christian, it doesn't just give you peace and groovy vibes down in your soul. Being a Christian is a little more than that, although there might be that, right? Becoming a Christian means you bring the gospel in and it affects every area of your life. Why? Let me ask you. As we start to wrap this up, what is the key to not loving your parents too much or too little? What is the key to not being too dependent on them or to be too angry at them? What's the key to not overindulging your child because you're afraid of their disapproval? And what's the key to not overdriving or over-disciplining your child because you're trying to live your life through them and their success is too important to you? It reflects on you. I'll tell you what the key is. It's the gospel. And that's, that's the last point. Until you see how Jesus was the true son who lost the love of his heavenly father so your sins could be forgiven, so that we could be brought into his family. Jesus was the true son who lost the love of his father so we could have God as our heavenly father. When we know he's our heavenly father and we know how he loved us at such cost to himself, then and only then, if you feel God's love sloshing around in your soul, will we have the security we need not to over-control our child or not to under-control our child. Not to want our parents' approval too much and not to be mad at them because they didn't give us the approval that we thought we needed. Because we have, we have God's approval. Our cup is overflowing with all the approval we would ever need. And how do we know we have God's approval? The approval of the perfect father. Because the ultimate son lost the love of the ultimate father so that we could have the love of the ultimate father, so that we could love our children, so that we could love our parents. And I'd do the same thing for work if I had time. I'm running out of time. 
Because, uh, real quick, Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate master, right? Who became a servant so that we could be free from slavery and live as children of God. Why? So that we could be saved, so that we could have our sins forgiven, so that we could serve the only non-oppressive master there is. Listen, why do you work? What, who, what is your real master? We're all working for something. Mainly, some of us are working today mainly for self-esteem, mainly for approval, mainly for security, mainly for power, mainly for status, and not for God. Then we're slaves. Your work will drive you into the ground. You'll always be unhappy. You'll always be frustrated. You'll struggle with depression. You'll always be driven right into the ground. But if you know who you are in Christ, then you work not mainly to feel good about yourself because you already have all the approval you need. You work not mainly for power because God's in control and you're in his plan. He's got your life. You don't have to be afraid. You work mainly not for provision because your greatest need has already been dealt with and you know that you've got a good, good father who's gonna provide for your every need. He promises to. He loves to give good gifts to his kids. So you don't work to get. You work because you've already been given. And now you're free to work as a way of giving back to the world around you, back to God in worship, back to the people around you. Work becomes something you do as a delight to serve God and to serve those around you. You're no longer a slave. You're free. You're liberated. You're a child of God. Only when you see the ultimate master who became a slave so you who are slaves can be free. Only when you see the ultimate son who lost his heavenly father's love, so we who should be orphans have become children of God. Now and only now can we really, like from the inside out, live our lives as family and live our lives in the workplaces we are created to. Jesus changes everything. The gospel changes everything. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us this sort of panoramic view of big parts of our lives and how the gospel applies. And, and there, <laughs> there's so much more because the gospel, the good news of what you've done for us applies to every area of life. It's not just our get out of hell free card. It's not just a one-way ticket to heaven. The gospel applies for right now to my finances, to my marriage, to my parenting, to my, my job. It applies to every aspect of my life. And God, if I haven't learned how to apply the good news there, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us and guide us into all truth like you promised. I pray for everybody in this place that we would not move beyond the gospel into uh, legalistic disciplines and trying to spin plates for you and prove ourselves to you, but that we would move deeper into the gospel and what you've done for us in Christ and how loved we are and that we would uncover this identity, this precious gift that we have freely from you and that we'd begin to believe it and live like it's true. God, Thank you. Thank you for this view. It, it does show that Jesus changes everything. I pray you'd help us to think out the implications of your gospel for our work and our families. And we ask that you grant this because we ask for it through Jesus. In his name we pray.